When tourists think of iconic Missouri destinations, St. Louis and Kansas City often top the list. Or if you're my family, it's the beginning of the Oregon Trail or Branson. But for Missourians, there's a vacation gem about an hour and a half south of the I-70 divide, the lake. Welcome to the beautiful Lake of the Ozarks. 92 miles long, 54,000 acres, 1,150 miles of shoreline. 40% of all Missourians that own second homes anywhere in the world own them here at the Lake of the Ozarks. Travel ads tout the lake's amenities. The lake's water, though murky, can be a welcome respite in muggy Missouri summers. Visitors can zip through the lake's curves on a cigarette boat before docking at a waterfront restaurant for a bite to eat. But don't forget the shopping, go horseback riding in the state park, enjoy a music show, indoor, outdoor water park, full service spas, incredible value. Take a tour, get to know our history, and you'll discover this is Missouri's paradise. Today on a map, the lake looks like a sprouting, twisting tree root that covers 86 square miles. The over 1,000 miles of shoreline are dotted with resorts and cabins. But that's not what it originally looked like. It used to be just a river, the Osage River, bending through the middle of Missouri. And legend has it, whole towns still exist on the bottom of the lake. And if you get to just the right spot in the lake, you can hear the phantom bell toll of a church steeple that reaches up from the lake bed. Whole trees float up from the bottom of the lake. Sunken cemeteries rest on the floor and large man-eating catfish hunt near the dam that created this whole lake. Lake of the Ozarks is man-made, and the creation of the lake pitted a lot of men against each other. So much so that before the story is over, there will be arrests, houses burned, towns buried under 100 feet of water, and an unfamiliar industry will emerge, permanently transforming the area. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past and try to figure out what really happened, why did it happen, and how has that shaped the state today. I'm Christopher Husted. You are listening to KBIA 91.3 FM and the Show Me the State program. Making this podcast and untangling complicated folklore takes time and money. So if you value this kind of journalism and storytelling, consider going to kbia.org and click the donate button. You're listening to KBIA 91.3 FM. Now, back to Show Me the State. This is a weird story. This is just mysterious, you know. I mean, who would think about plopping a lake down, particularly in the 1920s, in the middle of, of the Ozarks? That's Dan William Peake. Dan and his friend Kent Van Landet grew up in Versailles and are Ozark locals. They combined their cultural and social history of the lake with Kent's experience as a state sociologist to write a book, The People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks. I met up with Dan and Kent on the northern shores of the lake. The Peaks House in the Golden Beach area sits nestled into the hillside and overlooks the curving water, something unimaginable nearly 100 years ago. Here's Kent. All through these wooded areas, 
there were residents and there were small communities. And the ownership of land was almost shared. Someone have two or three cows or something, and somebody if they had river land, bottom land that they could farm. But it's very basic, no amenities, no running water, no electricity. They essentially lived off the land. The reason all of these people had to move and the origin of the lake? Bagnell Dam. There was a Federal Waters Resource Act in the early 1920s, which encouraged around the country for places to build a dam for generation of electricity. Ultimately, they decided that the Osage River down here in the Ozarks would be a good choice. Though the power was generated in the Ozarks, it was sent to St. Louis. So the St. Louis-based company transformed this rural landscape to create power. When they selected the project, that was in 1929 and the stock market crashed. There was a lot of question, but they had already set the money aside and were able to go ahead and build the dam down here, which was a very rural area, very poor area, sparsely populated. So in terms of that, this was an area that would not have a lot of impact on the people. The land was not valuable other than the cutting of trees for railroad ties and a little bit of agriculture in the bottomland. While some locals had bought official plots of land for their families, there were plenty of other people in these rural Ozark Mountains squatting or failing to get formal deeds to their land. Suffice it to say, many people are not happy about this dam. The Osage River was the biggest body of water in the area. And when they said, well, somebody's going to build a dam down there about an hour down the river from here, and they tell us it's going to raise that water level clear up here, and it's, there was no belief that that would happen. But behind the scenes, away from the smattering of houses and farms in the Ozarks, powerful business forces are making sure it will. Normally, projects on this scale are carried out by the state or the Corps of Engineers. But Bagnell Dam is a private project started by two men in Kansas City. Ralph Street, a lawyer, began working to create a hydroelectric dam on the Osage in 1912. He teamed up with Walter Cravens more than a decade later. You see, Street is the brains behind the operation. Cravens, who was the president of the Kansas City Joint Stock Land Bank, is the pocketbook. And this electricity project could bring in some good money for them, especially during the time of the Great Depression. There's only one problem. People still live in the region. And when the water rises, their homes sink. There was uh, processes to purchase the land and getting into what would be the impact on the area. People were relocated and everything that was going to be underwater, of course, was relocated, including cemeteries, towns, property were purchased and bought out. And buying land outright would cost a pretty penny. So Cravens came up with a genius idea. During the Great Depression, his land bank acquired numerous plots of foreclosed land throughout Missouri and Kansas. The plan? Trade those foreclosed plots of land for land in the flood path of the project, land for land. These people would, from Kansas City came down and bought a three-year right from someone and said, hey, here, I'll give you like $50 for the right to purchase your land when they 
build this lake down here. Well, when you had, as I said, the locals didn't even think that would ever be done, that water would come this high from a dam 30 miles down. Well, when the thing started, project moving forward and the development of the dam started happening. <laughs> and this is where the project changes hands a few times. Before the dam is built, Cravens, the fiscal power behind the project, is arrested. He took money from the bank and illegally loaned it to the project so the company could acquire the Osage land. With Cravens behind federal bars, the project halts. So, Street starts looking for another partner. He finds a power company, Union Electric. Maybe Street is just not good at finding honest people, because Union Electric's president, Louis Egan, also ends up in prison. He is using kickbacks demanded from the dam contractors to bribe politicians and journalists. Union Electric still moves forward though, albeit without its president at the helm. Union Electric exercised the rights to purchase this land. Rights were bought for everything that was going to be below the water level. And people didn't believe that it was going to happen. And when they started clearing land and that some people wouldn't move. It was surprising how, of course, if somebody walks in and you're, you're sitting on a piece of basically um, worthless land and somebody says, I'll give you five bucks for a, a three-year option on the land, we say, hey, honey, there's a nut out here who wants to give us money. <laughs> yeah. So you take the five bucks and then uh, the big surprise is Less than three years later, somebody shows up and says, we're exercising our option. Now, a lot of people probably said, what option is that? Well, you remember, we gave you the five bucks and you signed here. That, that's the option, time to pay up. Many of the people who could potentially remember Old Lynn Creek are no longer around. We reached out to one woman we found, but the story still made her uncomfortable and actually stirred up negative emotions so her family respectfully declined an official interview. The events and memories are preserved, though, at the county museums or in documentaries like Whispering Waters or Ozark Atlantis, narrated by historian John Wilson. It was quite a traumatic thing for them, having their old town taken. This was a remote, isolated community that the residents had homesteaded and lived here for a hundred years. And uh, they were uniquely isolated. The uh, people of Old Lincre couldn't believe when an amalgamation of big government and big business came in and just steamrolled over everything. They took all these people knew their homes homesteads, town, their whole way of life was changed. They ended up with money in their pockets at the beginning of the Great Depression, but there were also many deep feelings, mixed feelings, that uh, there are echoes of that even today in this area. Old Lynn Creek had churches, banks, grocery stores, a newspaper, automobile dealerships, a courthouse, and it all had to be moved because it was in the flood path. There are photos of Old Lynn Creek hanging in the Camden County Museum showing how the area prepared for the flood. Sharon May is vice president of the museum. 
what they did was before they started, they went up to a certain level on the hill. They measured up there and they cleared all the trees from there all down to the water line. That line is stark. Everything above the water line is verdant forest growing undisturbed. Below the line, bare. When it came time to clear the town, some buildings and homes were moved with painstaking care. This is interesting. This is the Methodist church that used to be in Old Lynn Creek. It was made out of concrete, but they did move the Methodist church into the new town of Lynn Creek. It still stands now. It's just right down the street from here. It was built in 1931, and the church got paid for the building, but before they destroyed it, they let them come in and all the stained glass windows, the pews, the floor, the whole inside of that little church down the street is from the old church. The only thing different is the outside, the brick. Along with the churches, the cemeteries needed to be excavated and moved into higher ground so bodies would be protected from the water. Though some believe not all the cemeteries were found, hence those local legends of bodies floating up to the surface. Back then, some officials didn't keep the best track record of which grave relocated where, and some documents are just gone. There are still ongoing projects to figure out who's whom in the new cemeteries. This was the last house that was still standing when the water started coming out. The man that owned it just set it on fire and just walked away. Some rebuilt just up the hill, while others who took the buyouts relocated. Well, construction on the dam begins with a big need for construction workers. And a majority of the people who stick around in the area are hired. This is the, the town that they built for all the workers to live in. <laughs> When they were building it, looks like a shanty town, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, it? Now this was done in the late 20s, so right around the depression, so all these people were just glad to have a job. So they, had, they didn't have any trouble getting help. As the rest of the county is dealing with the dire times of the stock market crash, the construction of Bagnell Dam flips the script and brings in economic opportunity. Several people say that the area didn't feel the major impact of the Great Depression because of those very jobs. Union Electric employed nearly 2,500 employees. In a twist of irony, many of the people who are displaced from their homes end up working the very jobs that would lead to the flooding of their land. And as the dam is finished in 1931, the land indeed floods. The influx of workers from around the region began the area's transformation, which continues for decades. And legends about haunted church bells, floating bodies, and man-eating catfish start spreading across the new shores. We'll be right back. I'm going to take a quick little break here to put some other shows on your radar. KBIA has two other podcasts to check out. The obvious question takes on the assumptions, misconceptions, and ignorance others have about people with disabilities, and the true-false podcast that goes beyond the film festival to explore documentary with the filmmakers. Find those and Show Me the State on KBIA.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to KBIA 91.3 FM. Now back to Show Me the State.
Okay, right out the gate, before we get to how the Osage Dam changed the lake of the Ozarks region forever, let's figure out what's up with the rest of these wild rural legends people at the lake sometimes share. Remember the old Lynn Creek Chapel? Some people say they can still hear it ringing at night. Well, yes, it's true that Lynn Creek had a chapel, but does it still ring from under the water? You can. It's right down the street here in in the Methodist Church. At 11 o'clock every Sunday, the church bell rings. It's not under the water. But the church is still down there, right? Along with other buildings that stayed put as the water slowly swallowed the town. There's still houses that are, uh, you know, still the structures are there and when the water goes down, they stick out of the water. We wanted to get to the bottom of this story, so we talked to some scuba divers who have visited Old Lynn Creek at the bottom of the lake. It turns out all that's down there at the current resting place of Old Lynn Creek are some walls from the original buildings. No structures that are close to being still intact or reach the surface. Okay, so what about the man eating catfish? That question has been around so long that the Animal Planet show River Monsters came to town to investigate. Well, this one's a little harder to tell where the sailor's tales end and the science begins. Certain species of catfish, including those in the lake, can grow up to nearly 5 feet long. The largest blue catfish ever caught in the state was 57 inches long and weighed 130 pounds. 130 pounds! But that fish was caught in the Missouri River in 2011. And the fish do get large down by the dam. But at least on record, they are nowhere near the size people claimed. The largest catfish ever caught in Lake of the Ozarks happened in 1987. That fish weighed in at 66 pounds. Absolutely nothing to balk at, but hard to see it devouring an entire human. All of these legends began because of the 12-story tall and half-mile-long hydroelectric Bagnell Dam that created the lake. Today, the dam produces enough electricity on average to power 42,000 homes a year. It was just a power plant. Remember authors Dan and Kent? They say for about 15 years after the completion of the dam, not much changed in the area. But in the 1940s... One major reason helped catalyze the region into development. The opening of Fort Leonard Wood, an army base training camp about an hour southeast of the Lake of the Ozarks. The impact of Fort Leonard Wood is not realized because Fort Leonard Wood had some property that people could come up to the lake on leave on weekends. So people from all over the United States came to Fort Wood and then all of a sudden, you know, they were going up to the to the lake, mainly to the Strip, because that's where some beer clubs were there and different activities. But it got recognized then, and then the work week changed to people quite often had Saturday and Sunday off, just working five days, so they could take a little trip. More weekenders mean better roads to get to the lake. More people coming in to go hunting and fishing. More retail shops with restaurants and bars. Weekend trips grew into week-long summer vacations. It became a destination in in the early 50s is when you can really tell that that happened, and then it just kept going. Kept going indeed. By the 1950s, many resorts started popping up along the shore. Owners would pop up five, six, maybe ten cabins and rent them out from March through late fall, sometimes for the whole summer. That was in the 50s when these things started happening. 
you had people that were here also wanted to do something besides hunt or fish, and then they want maybe a place to eat or you know a little entertainment. Mm -hmm. So to provide those need, needs, and then you know they were here, they needed some groceries, and then who knows, the little kid might got to get a cut on their leg, you know, on a rock. Well, we need some medical facilities, or we need a doctor. So. And then it just kept rolling and rolling. And was there, during this development period, were, was there any tension between locals and some of these businesses coming in? When, and how did that start? Oh, there, still, there still is. Yeah, it, from some aspects, there were some weren't. Some were, many people were glad to have the other opportunities here, and a lot of people were glad to have the jobs here, but... They were real happy to go back home that was maybe 10 miles from here and that their little community maybe was about the same. So uh, on overall, there was not a large resentment. There was, I guess you would say, tolerance, acceptance that it was there, but also recognizing it was providing a lot of things that you may not be able to have. But there's still a smoldering. Is part of that because there's maybe like there's a loss of this older culture that was really uh, specific or significant for the area before it got flooded and turned into this lake? Is it a loss of or shift of a culture? Because the culture is the culture different now than it was, you know, 50, 60, 70 it years ago. It is different, and the locals, generational residents, were so few in numbers. I mean, this was a sparsely populated area. And many that consider themselves natives may be a second or third generation here. So the real strong cultural values are recognized, but probably do not have a lot of influence overall to the, to the area now. Mm. But politically, there is still the staunch rural Missouri characteristics, such as you don't have rural planning and zonies in the four counties that are here. The incorporated towns do have some, but you know they still like the rural part being rural. It sounds like there's sort of a some reluctance of what's happened, but also uh, people are okay because of some of the tourism business that is there. So there's jobs there. It's sure. I'll learn to live with it. Yeah. What What are you gonna do it here? Right. It's like when Kent and I were growing up and and enjoying my wife. We're growing up, we were all in the same class and for sales, and it was just, it was just here. It's clear that the Lake of the Ozarks isn't the same as it was before the Osage rose, nor is it the same as it was when the lake first started attracting visitors. It's truly transformed into a vacation destination for the good and the bad. The pre-lake region wasn't spectacular in terms of agricultural growth or a bustling industry. Arguably, the creation of the dam helped the region during the Great Depression, but the nature of creating a lake vacation spot, inadvertently or not, means that in the summer, business booms. The continued success of the region can be attributed to the Ozark people's adaptability. Yeah, absolutely was. Uh, there's no doubt about that. There was, uh, you know, there were sacrifices that had to be made for, for growth. Tim Jacobson is the executive director of the Lake of the Ozarks Convention and Visitors Bureau. I would describe it as a um, outdoor mecca um, of of activities based around 
a large man man-made lake uh, that is um, offers a lot of different types of activities for different types of visitors. So we're still a, a hidden jewel in the United States, but the size of our lake and the development of a lot of our marinas has led us to be a boating mecca of the United States as well. Boating, resorts, spas, restaurants, retreats, and of course your fishing and hunting. And around those, grocery stores, health clinics, and builders. It's not just rural Missouri staples of Dollar Trees, Sonics, and gas stations, although those are here too. You know, tourism is the number two industry in the state of Missouri behind agriculture. So, you know, tourism is very good for, for a lot of businesses here in Lake of the Ozarks and many other destinations in the state as well. Most all of our locals realize that, you know, a lot of their businesses exist because of tourism. Even a, somebody that pours concrete, you know, knows that we attract somebody to come visit Lake of the Ozarks. They fall in love with Lake of the Ozarks and they buy a condo or a home. That construction company or concrete company is then building or pouring concrete. So they all understand how the funnel works to bring permanent residents to the area. And that funnel is through, through visitation, through tourism. You've both seen the lake shift culturally, development-wise. How would you describe what the lake is today to someone who's never been here? Oh, that's a good question. You, you take it, Kent. I feel the Lake of the Ozarks area is going to sustain for many, many years. It functions. It works together. People are still able to keep the identity that they want if they want to feel that they're yeah. much of the rural area or if they want to someone from the city and wants to go to a nice place, have a nice place to eat, a nice hotel, they can do that. So it has the multiple facets that a functioning metropolitan area has, but there sure wouldn't be the variety and things available in this area that are now if it wasn't for the construction of Bagnell Dam and the, and the impact that it made. That's what makes this area unique and as I say every time I speak is that it's unique to anything in the United States where you have a playground in your backyard and you don't have to do anything with it. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Rosemary Belson produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Femuliner. Our theme music and original scoring was created by Columbia band Loose Loose. Special thanks to Dan William Peake and Kent Van Landet. Their book is called A People's History of the Lake of the Ozarks. Thanks also to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy.